Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the police are getting set to end the occupation in downtown Ottawa. Have the changes in policing and security over the past few years been effective? I'll certainly talk about that. And the debate on the Trudeau government's decision to use the Emergency Measures Act has been postponed due to that police activity in downtown Ottawa, with the tactics to deal with the protesters warranted. And Global News reporter Mike Arsenault is going to join us to talk about the biggest story, especially from the Canadian standpoint of the Beijing Olympics. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now today on the bill kelly show on 900 chml watching uh things unfold of course in ottawa downtown ottawa uh, as you've heard in the news uh, they're not going to debate this anymore in parliament well not today anyway simply because the speaker of the house has said stay away uh, because there is an ongoing police investigation and that's pretty obvious there's a number of officers have moved into the ottawa uh, downtown core and uh, some arrests have been made uh, I want to bring Phil Gursky into the conversation. Phil, of course, is our president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. He's also the director of the University of Ottawa Security Program and a former CSIS analyst and author, of course, who's written uh, about uh, terrorism and about security issues. Uh, Phil, uh, busy day today. Thanks for jumping on. How are things going in the nation's capital? Well, as well, as you said, Bill, it's uh, really interesting These what's happening in downtown Ottawa. The arrests have been made. Uh, we're just digging out from 30 centimeters of snow, Bill. It took me an hour and a half to show my driveway this morning. So uh, that was my one priority. But it looks like the protests might be coming finally to an end, which will make a lot of Ottawans very, very happy. Yeah, we didn't get quite as much as, as was anticipated here. I think they saved some of it and dumped it on you guys overnight. <laughs> so my, my apologies for that. Well, thank you. Thank but you for I, the gift. Me- I appreciate it. Took me a half hour to get out of to get the driveway cleared off today too. So, uh, but anyway, let's let's talk about and the weather's a factor in this situation too. Uh, and, and again, you're not directly involved in this, and this is not a terrorist act. And we've talked about that in the past. I, I still don't want people to characterize it as such. Uh, but there are security issues at play here. Uh, from what you have seen uh, from uh, your your spot, of course, just outside of Ottawa, Phil. Uh, what the way this is unfolding right now is 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 this surprising to you do you understand the protocol and understand the the moves that are being made here the vis-a-vis checkpoints officers on scene etc i do and and certainly it's been an evolving situation for the past three weeks you know the best way that it was described to me bill by a former rcmp officer who was responding to allegations the police weren't doing enough is that when you're faced like a situation with this you, you want to be careful about how you manage it because you don't want to make things worse you don't want to go in truncheons waving and shields because that just gets people's you know nerves on edge the phrase you used was interesting so you want to bore people to death in other words you want them to get you know so disappointed with what's going on they just they get in their trucks and they drive off that obviously didn't happen and i think as the longer that this particular protest went on and the i guess some call it an occupation of of the street in front of parliament here at wellington street in downtown ottawa this was inevitable that police action would be taken now of course you know we've had the resignation of the chief of police he's been replaced by uh stephen bell who also was with ottawa police different person different experiences different way of looking at things uh, we've also had the Declaration of the Emergency Measures Act, which you and I could talk about for days, whether that was required. So a lot has changed, Bill. But I, I think the bottom line is, is that the protest has gone on long enough. It has um, resulted in a lot of disruption for people's lives. And it was simply time for it to end. And then the decision was made by police. We're going to end it by going in and making arrests. And that's what they've done. Yeah, I know the debate about the uh, the Emergency Measures Act. Well, it's been delayed, obviously, because they, they, they've told the parliamentarians don't come to work today because of what's going on downtown. Uh, and I can understand that from a security measure. You don't want to make things worse by having people down there cluttering up the streets. But 
the timing of this is rather odd, isn't it, Phil? I mean, now it looks like it's probably going to be at least early next week before they get around to debating and even voting on that. Uh, and by then, this may be over. <laughs> so, you know, you have to, at that point, you know, question whether or not it's even going to be necessary. I, that's a really good point. And, and, you know, for the record, I, I'm having a hard time understanding how a, a protest that's gone this long warrants the invocation of the Emergency Measures Act. Bill, you and I remember last time this came about in 1970 when it was called the War Measures Act. And that was in direct response to a series of terrorist attacks in the province of Quebec in which the FLQ had killed six people, kidnapped a British diplomat, kidnapped a Quebec provincial minister whom they later killed. And of course, Trudeau's father, Pierre, invoked the War Measures Act. That was a real serious situation where people were dying. And, and so, you know, does having you know uh, trucks with their horns blazing and, and people being rude and nasty and belligerent, does that the same level of seriousness as an act of terrorism 30 or what 50 years ago now i don't know but the bottom line bill is that i think everyone agreed that um enough is enough we need to go get back to some kind of normal and um this is why i think we're, we're seeing what's happening now so is it is it a new display of i don't know courage by the police i wouldn't say so they're simply doing the jobs that uh they, they, they've always done and, and they've just realized that now it's time for a different tactic yeah, and, and you're right. It, it, it's it's an apples and oranges comparison. Although I, I, as a citizen, I've got deep concerns about uh, you know groups like this that can simply co-opt a city like they have Ottawa or cho- choke off our economy. I mean, when you know, thirty percent of your trade with your number one trading partner is blocked off because these guys won't get off the bridge. I got that, but and I, I, I was always under the impression, at least over the last twenty four hours or so, that the the reason they even tried to invoke this was just to, it, it was it was a show of force. I don't know if they ever planned to do much about this. Uh, but to show these guys that they're in business. But I, I, I agree with you. I think by the time that uh, they get around to voting on this, uh, the streets of Ottawa are probably going to be clear by then. Uh, we have to be diligent about this, which I, I guess is the next part of the, the conversation we have to have here, is, uh, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, let's clean this up. And, and it looks like Ottawa police, and, and with their help from the other police services, are, are doing that today. But what happens going forward? And let's let's delve into the the intelligence and the security issues that are involved in this. Uh, this was not a surprise. They didn't wake up one day and say, "My God, where did these people come from?" I mean, they knew they were coming, uh, and I'm, we're starting to get word now, Phil, that they kind of knew who these people were too. They, you know, yeah, there were some truckers, some disenchanted truckers, but there was much more going on with this thing here, including you know f- uh, money from the states, especially uh, organizers are from the states, I guess. And we've talked about this before, you know, this, the 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 underhanded methods that some of these groups are using, to, well, to influence things like Brexit. Certainly, what happened in the uh, the U.S. Capitol on January sixth of last year. Uh, this is an ongoing problem, and they may clean this one up, but how do you avoid the next one that's coming? And they are inevitably coming. We don't know when and where, but they're coming. You're absolutely right. And I'm glad you raised the intelligence issue, Bill. So there were allegations about a week ago by uh, someone who calls himself a national security expert. This was an intelligence failure. And then not surprisingly, as a guy who spent 32 years in the business, I I get a little bit, my back gets a little bit up when people start talking about intelligence failures. Well, it turns out another piece just came out uh, in The Guardian in the UK that said, well, actually, it wasn't an intelligence failure. Because ITAC, which is the Integrated Terrorism Assessment Center, it's part of CSIS, it's within CSIS, it gets most of its intelligence from CSIS, actually warned back in January about what was going to happen, uh, who the actors were, what they were concerned about. So the intelligence was there. 
And I know based on my contacts that, in fact, CSIS has been looking at this, these files, these actors for quite some time now. Like in my day, Bill, it was all jihadis all the time because that was the threat. Mm-hmm. Well, things have mutated, as you said, and CSIS is, is well aware of what's happening. What seems to have happened, this is speculative on my part, Bill, is that the intelligence was there, but it wasn't acted upon. And I'm, I'm not surprised at that because the Canadian governments uh, of whatever political stripe, liberal, uh, conservative, whatever, we don't have a very good intelligence culture like the Americans and the Brits and even the Australians do. And what that means is that officials, government, elected officials, senior officials don't always know what to do with intelligence. Sometimes they don't, they don't trust it. Um, sometimes they reject it because it's intelligence and they don't have they don't, they don't know where it comes from. But it seems to me that the information was available and could have been acted upon earlier. So I would reject this allegation that there was a failure of intelligence. I think it's more of a failure to act on the intelligence. And we've talked about this with some of the past incidents, too. And and, and you're right. I, I don't know when uh, the lesson will be learned here, but our, our officials uh, tend to be reactive as opposed to proactive when they get information like this. Yeah, they do. And the, the thing is that if the, if the intelligence was as solid as it was, and I, I don't have access to it, Bill. I mean, I don't work for CSIS anymore, but I know the kinds of intelligence we used to pass on. You could have made decisions based on that. And if the intelligence said, you know, that X, Y, or Z is going to happen, oh, no, oh, by the way, it's not just truckers. As you said, it's, you know, some uh, conspiracy theorists and some anti-vaxxers and maybe even some neo-Nazis and white supremacists. You could have put measures in place to actually interdict them well before they got to the Capitol. You have reasonable grounds to believe they are there to do some illegal things. Well, the police can actually lay charges and they, and they can, you know, or issue peace bonds on people. We've seen that happen as well. So I do think the information was there and the failure to act on it. Uh, that'll be the more interesting. I don't know if we're going to have a review or an inquiry into this kind of thing, but I'd like to know about who knew what, when, and why did they make the decisions that they did? So in other words, there was always going to be a protest. I think that was sort of a, a, a given, but would it have been as prolonged and as disruptive as it turned out to be? Maybe not if the intelligence had been acted upon in a more, in a better fashion earlier. Well, because as we found out subsequently now, of course, there are plans that can be put into place. I mean, you know, there were protests in Toronto the last two weekends too, but they mm-hmm. knew they were coming. And and I got the sense that Toronto police, and for that matter, I guess the city of Toronto, were proactive. They said, okay, you're not going down this street. This is blocked off right now, uh, you know, because this is important. There are hospitals down there. We don't want these, these you know, to be affected by this. And and they had the protest, and at the end of the day, the protesters went away, uh, which is fine. Uh, you know, Ottawa apparently didn't do a whole lot of anything in way of preparation. And I, I guess they figured, well, we have protests here all the time. This is just going to be another one. But there was a lot more to this one, which, to your point, I think is, is indicative of that they had that information and they knew this was not going to be an ordinary protest, but they still, I guess, hoped it was going to be okay as opposed to prepared for I think so. And you also raise a good point, Bill. You know, protests happen all the time on Parliament Hill. Good God, Bill, I've lived here since 1982, and I can't count the number of protests, whether they're two or three people with a sign or 100 people with tents, whatever, on on the front lawn of Parliament Hill. And I think they're, you know, in a liberal secular democracy, we have to allow people to express their views. I mean, under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, you have those rights, you know, to protest and to to say you you disagree with things. As a consequence, there maybe is a mentality that we have to allow people this space to actually register their opinions and we can't prevent them from doing so. 
However, uh, if the intelligence indicated that it was going to be an out of the ordinary protest that was going to be a lot more involved and, and would include some characters that, you know, could potentially pose a threat to public safety, then I think you, you have to say to yourself, yes, we have a right under the charter, under the constitution to make our voices heard. We have a right to demonstrate, but you don't have a right to demonstrate and essentially occupy the downtown for three weeks. So I, I think it's a real fine line, Bill. When you want to say to people, yes, you have that right, but not this time, because, you know, there's always people who say, well, what gives you the right to take away my rights? So, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I, I guess I'm trying to say, I wouldn't want to be in the government's shoes in this one, because you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, just like you are with law enforcement, Bill, and security intelligence. Sure. No matter what you do, you're being criticized for it. But it, it seems to me that bottom line is, is that the information was available. And yes, things could be done differently. As you said, Toronto did it differently. Other cities did it differently. And it could have turned out to be a very different type of protest had those measures put in place at, at a much earlier stage. Exactly. Well, we'll uh, watch how things unfold over the next couple of hours up there. Uh, Phil, as always, thanks so much for the time today. It's uh, probably, I guess the plow's probably gone on and, and probably covered up your driveway again, so you better get back out there. <laughs> I better have uh, a look. Thanks, Bill. <laughs> stay well this weekend. We'll talk again soon. You too, sir. Take care. Phil Gursky, of course, uh, who is uh, involved with, uh, well, the security at the University of Ottawa, and of course, a former CSIS uh, member for many, many years, too. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We continue our coverage of what's happening in downtown Ottawa today, uh, where police are moving in and apparently are uh, trying to put an end uh, to the occupation of the downtown core. Uh, one of the the elements of that, of course, is, is the law and order aspect, and we've talked about that uh, with a number of, uh, of experts in the last little while. But there's a political element to this as well, and that, of course, is what the government was doing when they introduced the Emergency Measures Act just a little while ago. But as Don Kelly reports from Ottawa today, uh, the House of Commons won't be sitting and debating that today because of the police operation, which is going on in downtown Ottawa. Common Speaker Anthony Rota says today's sitting is cancelled. He's urging anyone not in the parliamentary precinct to stay away from the core until further notice. MPs were set for another day-long debate of the government's emergency orders that took effect earlier this week, but require confirmation by the House of Commons and Senate. The lights on police vehicles are flickering at about 100 checkpoints across Ottawa's downtown core. Officers are checking every vehicle looking to get into the secure area that spans about four square kilometres. Don Kelly, the Canadian Press. So they won't be debating this in the Commons today, but uh, we're going to be talking about it because it's an integral part of what's going on. Uh, the legislation itself, which uh, allows for these uh, uh, police activities and the, and the cleanup to occur, and uh, subsequent ones, I suppose, as well. But let's let's have that discussion about the, the, the act that uh, Parliament eventually will be voting on. Uh, and to that end, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Professor Wayne Petrosi, uh, Professor Petrosi, of course, is uh, in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. Uh, Professor, pleasure to have you back on the program. I hope you're doing well. I am, and thank you very much. Let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, the legislation itself. Uh, a lot of information, some misinformation, I guess, and, and maybe some misinterpretations of what's going on with the, uh, the, the Emergencies Act as it is right now. Uh, first of all, your read on the act. This is not new, of course, as we mentioned on the program a couple of days ago. It's not something that this government has drawn up. It's actually been on the books for quite some time, hasn't it? Yes, it has. It was uh, uh, passed in the late 1980s. Uh, so, yes, it has been on the books for you now 30-plus years. 
And uh, as you know, this is not the War Measures Act. I, I, I rather, I, I guess, cryptically refer to it as Son of War Measures Act. Uh, that, of course, was something that was enacted by Pierre Trudeau during the uh, the October crisis so many years ago. Uh, the maybe a little history here, Professor, but why all of a sudden, uh, the, some years later, the Mulroney government uh, decided to to revamp this and, and, like I say, take the War Measures Act off the books and put this one in. Uh, it, was it to clean up some of the concerns that people had about the the power that the War Measures Act had? The, yes, the problem with the with the old with the War Measures Act, the original War Measures Act, was that it it it, it essentially provided. It was a blanket uh, declaration of, of emergency, even if, in fact, they were only in, say, operating for the most part in Quebec in the, mm-hmm. when it was declared in, in 1972. In fact, it applied across the country. So it, there was a recognized that there was a need that you had to have something that was far more specific, far more targeted and appropriate to the circumstances that would give rise to invoking it. And there is, you know, we got this as a, as a, from from the Melbourne government, this emergency act. How effective were they to that end, uh, to clean up the concerns about this? Uh, uh, one of the things I think we take great pride in here, living in this part of the world, uh, is that, you know, we hold our governments accountable. We have checks and balances, or at least we attempt to have checks and balances on everything. Does this emergency act actually meet the standard of those checks and balances? Well, it, it certainly does in terms of it's, it's time-limited, it's it's uh, it, it, it's of course it has to have parliamentary approval and and then it is time limited in terms of its uh, being in place. Uh, the the only issue with it really the one that has led the Canadian Civil Liberties uh, Association to to tra- challenge this in court is that the definition of national emergency actually isn't in the Emergencies Act. It's embedded in the Act that created CSIS, the, the Intelligence Service, and that definition. Uh, you know, really sets out a limited set of circumstances that you could define as a national emergency. And now the CCLA will go to court and, and claim that uh, what's happened that today today's situation does not meet the definitions of emergency that were allowed in that legislation. And, and that's obviously, as you mentioned, something the courts are going to have to to make that's a ruling right. on. Uh, what's your read on it, though, Professor? I'm, you know, th- you know, there have been no deaths, uh, uh, you know, such as Pierre Laporte, of course, during the October crisis. Uh, no kidnappings with uh, Pierre Laporte and James Cross, etc. Uh, you know that the, the FLQ situation back then was was a, a, a horrible situation uh, that had an awful lot of us concerned, and and I think that's what you know a lot of people would, at that time thought. Okay, this I guess this is having to happen. You know the now famous you know uh, comments by by then Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau. You know just watch me about how far he was going to go uh, for law and order. Uh, this is a different set of circumstances, but is, is there a valid argument here that the country was in peril that 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 would have justified something like this? Well, I, I think that, as I said, you know, I think constitutional lawyers, uh, scholars and, and lawyers uh, who specialize in constitutional cases, they're going to have to sort that out. And I think there is grounds to, uh, you could, uh, it's not an unreasonable argument for the Civil Liberties Association to make that, in fact, what the situation today, the emergency today, does not meet the definition of national emergency set out in that act I mentioned. So certainly that is quite it's possible that the court might agree with the Civil Liberties Association. Uh, but having said that, I, I think what this is far more about is it's not a, a, a constitutional crisis or in any way. It, it's really it is 
a crisis of the integrity of our political systems and institutions and the political parties that that uh, occupy them that that's where the the heart of the problem is there not with this the reading of the statute I, and again, words matter, I guess, in situations like that. And I know that's what the conservatives specifically, of course, uh, with interim leader Candace Bergen saying that, you know, this this is a breach of, of trust of the government. But there was a stated move and, and I think purpose by the protesters to say that the, one of the reasons they were going to Ottawa was to basically turf this government out of office. So, you know, they weren't going to leave until you know, Justin Trudeau was gone. Do we take that as a threat against our democratic institutions? Well, <clears throat> I'm not sure I would take it as a threat to democratic institutions. I think it unfortunately reflects the almost uh, infantile understanding of government that these protesters and their supporters have. Mm -hmm. uh, they clearly inhabit a, a, an alternate reality uh, in which the governor general and the Senate can force not just the government to resign, but the whole of, of the House to resign in mass uh it, it's you know it's it's like cartoons but you know what isn't at all humorous or uh, or one shouldn't be at all sanguine about is that these folks have this is not about public health it never was it it it's really not about the vaccine mandate uh in spite of their 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 retroactive protests otherwise this, these are not matters. I mean, you have the, the conservative uh, interim leader saying that, well, because it wasn't a specific scientific study done that specifically targeted the rate of transmission among truck drivers, I'd like to know who should think would do that study, that therefore this is not at all based on science. This is based on, you know, preferences of, of a prime minister. It's such utter nonsense when we have virtually hundreds of studies that showed this virus is transmissible from person to person. It's airborne. And unless she knows truckers who don't breathe, they transmit if they're positive. The, as I said, really what's appalling here is the behavior of our institutions and politicians. Uh, it, it, and so no wonder, you know, uh, a, a very reputable Canadian pollster noted the other day just how many Canadians have a rather dim view of their uh, political system, their political parties, and the institutions around them. And it's not a surprise. I mean, the irony is this didn't happen a year and a half ago at the height of it, of the uh, pandemic. It happened at the tail end. It happened at the tail end. And it's, you know, this nonsensical claim continuously repeated by, by, by the conservative opposition, that somehow if, if Canada got rid of the mandate uh, for, for truck drivers to be vaccinated, they could then drive into the United States. Well, no, they can't. They can't, they won't. <laughs> they either get a shot or they look for another line of work. And yet we go on and on and on, and people look at this and, and, and are, are understandably, we're not just frustrated, we can't believe the, the ineptitude and the dishonesty, uh, the hypocrisy uh, th that that surrounds this. This was well, and I, and I'm I'm sure you see. I'm faced with this every day. As a matter of fact, just as you and I are having sure. this discussion now, I'm getting more tweets and emails right now from people that say you don't know what you're talking about. I don't know. I'm not an expert, but neither are they. But I I talk to the experts. I talk to Dr. Uni. I talk to others. 
who have spent their lives studying infectious diseases and, and epidemiology. And uh, I'll take their advice anytime over some uh, person that just wants to go to Ottawa and break up the government, which was really the stated purpose of this. No, they've taken that down from their manifesto, but it was certainly there before. Uh, but this was, we, we saw this coming though, didn't we, Professor? I mean, during the federal election last year, you know, with the, the, the group that was following around uh, then candidate, of course, Justin Trudeau, when they were seeking re-election, you know, the, the rock throwing at him and the, and the protests that were going up. Uh, this is, and, and again, Candace Bergen is doing the same sort of thing. She's bringing up arguments that were basically thrown out two years ago. Uh, but they're the talking points of the anti-vaxxers, and, and, and that's what she's clinging to right now. Yes, I mean, that is what she's clinging to. You're right, this is not new. You're right, we we should have seen it coming, and, and a good many analysts uh, and observers of the came political scene did see it coming. Uh, you know, the it, it, you recall, and, and perhaps the people tweeting you should should go back and, and look at footage. Uh, a year ago, in January 2021, Candace Bergen was walking around Parliament Hill wearing a MAGA hat while the U.S. Yeah. Uh, Congress was being assaulted. Uh, whether that mega hat caused some kind of temporary issues with her, I have no idea. But, you know, just two weeks ago, Andrew Scheer was walking outside doing selfies with protesters. I mean, th- this isn't misinformation. This isn't disinformation. Andrew Scheer posts them. Unless yep. you think, as, as these folks tend to, that there's this amazing conspiracy that explains everything from... Trudeau being fathered by Pierre, uh, by Fidel Castro, uh, to the idea that the vaccines are really implanting locational devices in all of us so that we can be followed. I mean, we can go on and on and say that's opinion. That's a, it's not a question of opinion, as you put it. It's about the science, and the science tells us this is a terrible pandemic. It's, it's mutated. It continues to mutate. It's challenged us immeasurably, and the way out of it, though, is through the way of science, getting vaccinated, following public health protocols, and trying to, get, trying to exhaust this virus. Well, and the characterization of this, and, you know, we're seeing this manifested I said, by, you know, the, the supporters of this, including, by the way, some of the clowns on Fox News these days who seem to have clung to this. You know, I guess, you know, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a vehicle for them to simply express their, their anger, I guess, for the institutions and for the majority. Uh, but it, they're, they're using, well, first of all, like you say, it's fake science, if I can use that phrase, about what's going on. And, and what happens here is we have to, I think, accept the realization that this is, is still the minority, even within the trucking industry. I still don't. I never did call this a trucking protest. Some people still cling to this idea of a freedom playing. Freedom from what? Freedom from responsibility. Ninety percent of us are vaccinated. Ninety percent of the people that are in the trucking industry are vaccinated and doing their jobs day in and day out. Uh, instead of going to Ottawa and trying to do this sort of thing, this is a small vocal minority that just don't want to accept reality and unfortunately they're wrecking havoc upon our capital and the and as they did on the ambassador bridge and and it's about time that we said okay enough is enough i mean we, we're a tolerant people in canada professor as you know but we have our limits and i think you know we've extended that and we're beyond those limits now well i think absolutely right and in fact i think it's precisely that, that our tendency to take a very common sense approach that has us just scratching our head in wonderment at how this is has been allowed by institutions to to fester like this and to burst out into these kinds of ocu- uh, uh, occupations. I mean, 
I, I, for the life of me, cannot and I do not understand what happened to police forces in Ottawa, Windsor, uh, the OPP in, in Niagara, in terms of how they essentially uh, allowed countenance behavior that they never have countenanced, never would have stood for. I know, Bill, if you and I were to take our cars after this show, you're done, and go on to the uh, East uh, Toronto Bound uh, Skyway, turn our cars crossways, we'd block all three lanes. And, all, and, and apparently, uh, the understanding seems to be that if, as long as you and I had a flag on our car, Canadian flag or something that we waved, the OPP should just let us sit there for, for a day and a half and block virtually all traffic heading Toronto bound. You say, Wayne, that's silly and stupid. Well, except a week ago Saturday, 15 young people walked onto the QEW uh, near Fort Erie, and that's exactly what they did. And the OPP yeah. just kind of looked at them and, you know, kept an eye, and they, they closed the highway. I, well, you know, they took the same attitude. As, that, that, as a citizen, I'm thinking, what the heck is going on where, you know, reason seems to have left the premises? Well, hopefully this is a wake-up call. And, and you know, this is a lesson learned here. And I hope it's a lesson that we don't forget as soon as this gets cleaned up anyway. Uh, I'm, I, by the way, I'm heading down that highway later on after the show, <laughs> Professor. You're absolutely right. And I hope the hell there isn't anybody blocking it. Uh, uh, that's one of the lessons I think we need to learn. Thanks so much for the time, as always, uh, Wayne. Great to have you back on the show, and uh, stay well, and we'll talk again soon. Okay, thank you very much. Have a good day. You too. That's a Professor Wayne Petrosi, of course, from Ryerson University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're also uh, keeping an eye on Beijing with our uh, Canadian contingent, of course, at the Winter Olympics. Uh, and it's been a pretty good week, all things considered. Mike Arsenault from Global News has been tracking this for us over the course of the uh, the Olympics in Beijing. And he joins us uh, here on the Bill Kelly Show to give us an update. Uh, Mike, hope you're doing well. It's a uh, very chilly day today. Uh, well, I am doing pretty well, Bill. I have to say, the athletes have to be in great shape. My voice apparently wasn't trained enough for the entirety of these <laughs> Olympics. I'm going to see if I can get through this next 10 minutes with you, but it's going to be a photo finish. <laughs> well, you know what? It's all that yelling and screaming you did watching the women's hockey game the other night. I knew that was going to have an impact, Mike. Exactly, and the lack of sleep, too. All the most exciting well, that, events, of yeah. course, are, are pretty much nocturnal. So it has been, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a treat to watch the Canada's athletes over the last couple of weeks and just well, that's, a couple that... days left. In the competition. Yeah, and that's 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 been the big takeaway, of course. You know, we I guess in past Olympics when you know the NHL players were involved in, in the hockey tournament, that was always the big thing for us. You know, going for gold and uh, and the fact that the women did so well and and there's more to this. I mean, go, winning the gold is incredible, and we're all happy about that. But I, I think one of the great takeaways from this, and I know you've talked about this with your reporting on this over the, the, the next day, especially, is the way in which they won. Uh, you know, they went undefeated. They set records with goal scoring, goals against average. Uh, you know, great Sarah Nurse uh, with an incredible tournament. Uh, there's a lot of positives about the way that they won that gold, aren't there? Uh, for sure. I mean, it's cliche to say it was a road to redemption, but that's exactly what it was. Of course, Canada, the Canadian women lost to the U.S. back in 2018 in the gold medal game. They lost in a shootout, and they pretty much had this date, the gold medal game here at the 2022 Olympics, circled on their calendar for four long years. Of course, they had to deal with the pandemic. Many of the leagues that were playing in were kind of shut down at times as well. So how do you stay sharp? How do you stay at the top of the game? And Marie-Philippe Poulain, of course, uh, Captain Clutch, 
uh, was really talking about after the game is how the team was able to kind of stay together and stay focused on this one singular goal. And you mentioned it, an undefeated tournament. Most goals ever scored. Sarah Nurse setting the all-time record uh, for points in the Olympic tournament. And how about this stat uh, for Poulin, Bill? She's the only hockey player, male or female, to ever score in four consecutive gold medal games at the Olympics. She was just a lights out. I mean, yeah, that's I know it's a cliche in sports, but I mean it's it's a cliche because it's you know we use it so often. It's true. Uh, you want your best players to be your best players, and it, you know that gold medal game with all the the tension involved in that. Uh, she was just incredible. Well, that's the thing. You look at NHL players when they and chase for the Stanley Cup. They have an opportunity opportunity to do that every year. This is kind of the highest level for women's hockey is the Olympic gold. World championships, yes, they have that every year, but really the crown jewel is getting that Olympic gold medal. So think of losing that opportunity back in 2018. You're not going to have another chance at it four long years and just to stay uh, positive. And I mean, uh, Poulin, she's 30 now. Again, this is the, the fourth Olympics she's been at. It would be easy to say, oh, I have a couple of gold medals. That's it. But she came back for this one and she's only 30. We could see her potentially scoring in the fifth gold medal game four years from now in 2026. Certainly hope so. Uh, there's been some controversy uh, in the game, certainly, as you've been talking about with your reporting on this, uh, certainly when it comes to women's figure skating and uh, the, 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 terrible situation that occurred there because of the doping allegations and, and the way that the IOC has handled this and, and, and caused a great deal of consternation. I, I think one of the quotes of what in your reporting was saying that you know, one of the, the other skaters that said, look, at, I hate this sport. This is just terrible. Uh, you know, well, I'm not going to get a medal if she doesn't get a medal or, you know, or I'm not going to get a medal period because of what's going on. It's going to take a long time to sort this out. And I guess even a longer time for some of these athletes to get over their, their, their angst about it too. It, it is for sure. And I think Bill, it's easy to kind of point the finger at Russia. I mean, rightly so, but it's kind of the big, bad Russian athletes kind of having these, they've had doping sanctions and they keep doing this. But I just, when I was watching Valieva uh, skate in the free program, it was it was just sad to watch. I mean, this is a 15-year-old girl. She literally has the eyes of the world on her. She's been thrust into this maelstrom, not of her own doing. And she was just kind of left to her own devices to really crumble in front of all of our eyes. So it was really uh, difficult to watch her in that program at 15 years old. I mean, this is going to fall around for the rest of her life, really. I mean, the focus should be on the people who put her up to this, who kind of forced her to take this banned drug and really the that's still going to shake out too. What exactly happens with that positive drug test? There will be sanctions. Um, this will still be investigated. This is not over by any stretch of the imagination. So we'll find out what happens there in the weeks to come. Well, and I felt the same way. And when I heard the initial explanation from the IOC saying, you know, we, we think it would be unfair to the other skaters if we went through and just pretended nothing ever happened here. I, I feel badly for her, not just the other skaters, but her. She, you're right. She's a kid. And there's no way that she was involved in this. I had no, you know, there's no way she even knew what, what was going on here. And she seemed as shocked as anybody else. Uh, and and, she, and you're right. She's going to, she's going to carry this around forever, isn't she? She will. And I mean, in figure skating, I mean, it, it's a very, it's a very young sport. She might not get another opportunity at the Olympic games. This, this might've been it, but it would have been nice if someone in her inner circle, whether it's her coach or her family members or something, just maybe just pull her out. Like there's no reason to kind of put her through that stress. You could see her literally breaking down in real time during that performance, and then she just dissolved into, into tears afterwards. I have a young daughter at home, and I just can't imagine putting her in that scenario after what has happened over the past week and still having her compete. It was just really sad to see. 
Well, I'm going to tell you, give you a little fatherly advice here, Mike. I don't put her into figure skating then. Uh, get her into half pipe, okay? Uh, <laughs> that's that's something that, you know, it's a relatively new Olympic sport. It's only been, you know, I guess the Vancouver Games is the first time we really saw an awful lot of this. Uh, we're good at that. I mean, you know, Cassie Sharp was, has just been incredible. Uh, Rachel Carker, both of them won medals. Uh, it's It's wonderful to see the way the Canadians have really excelled there. It is, and that's just the women, of course. So that's actually the second event in the Beijing Games where we had two Canadian athletes on the podium. The first, of course, was last week, the men's snowboard slope style. And as you mentioned, we won silver and bronze late last night. And then we still have the men's uh, half-pipe freestyle, freestyle skiing aerial to come as well. So there's some more opportunities for medals uh, later this evening into early this morning. But I mean, yeah, what, what, uh, what we've been able to do with freestyle skiing is really impressive. I mean, we may not have... Uh, the world's best when it comes to kind of the alpine skiing events, but freestyle and snowboarding, that really seems to be in our wheelhouse for sure. Well, incredible. And well, it, it, speaking of skiing, of course, you know, there's a Mariel Thompson, of course, and she won a silver with uh, the ski cross uh, just a, a little while ago as well. So it's, it's incredible to see this. I know we're always nervous, Mike, but every Olympics, oh, how's Canada going to do, you know? This has been a pretty good tournament for them. When you look at the, the medal hall here, I, I, you know, we're not going to finish in the top eight or nine or ten or whatever it is, but that's simply you know, the way things seem to be these days. But uh, it's, I think it's been a pretty successful game for the Canadian team. What has been? Well, Bill, let me ask you a question. How do you count the medals? Do you look at total medals or just goals? Because I really think that's I, total medals. how you look at it. I look at total as well, because there's a reason why the Olympics give out gold, silver, and bronze. Most sports, of course, it's just win or go home. They don't have a third yeah. game in the Super Bowl, right? But if we're going to count all these medals individually, gold, silver, bronze, it should be a total encapsulation of the events. In Canada, at 24, so we won the four medals today, that brings us to 24. That's tied for fourth all time in Canadian Winter Olympic history. Still have a couple medal opportunities to go in the last couple days. Of course, what really hurts us is uh, the curling women. Uh, they didn't make it to the medal round, and of course, uh, men's hockey as well. So generally, that is two medals you can kind of mark us down for. We didn't win a mixed curling either, but there's a chance. Again, this we could end up with the second or third greatest medal haul in Canadian Olympic winter history. So I think you have to call that a success for sure. Yeah, it was disappointing. Jennifer Jones, I know I probably nobody more disappointed than she uh, because of the way things going. It was just, you know, bad karma just seemed to be the thing. Uh, at least we didn't get shut out there because Brad Gushu did finally uh, come up big. And of course, they ended up with the bronze in, in men's curling. So we can take that away anyway. Uh, for sure. So I guess if you look at the, the curling events, what men's, women's mixed, we went one for three. So yeah, probably at the start of the Olympics, not exactly what we were expecting. But it, both it with uh, Jennifer Jones and uh, Brad Gushu in the semifinal. Uh, it came down to millimeters, literally the last shot of the last end and millimeters away from Canada either advancing to the gold medal game in men's curling or advancing to the medal round in the women's curling. But yeah, uh, Gushu got the bronze. So 16 years after he won gold medal uh, in 2006 in Italy, Bill, 16 years later, he comes back. He has two kids now. He's a little bit older and he has uh, another medal uh, from a podium finish. So it's a great story there. Well, and it's always fun to watch this. I mean, you know, Brad, of course, was just a, he was just a baby when he won his first national title, of course. So uh, there's a lot to go here. You know, you think of some of the guys that have hung around that sport and excelled at it for so long, uh, like Russ Howard and so many others, that uh, you, know, you know that he's nowhere near done. Uh, there's going to be a lot more from Brad Gushu in, in the, uh, the years to come, not just in the Olympics, but, of course, in, in the Worlds as well. Uh, uh, speed skating is something else that, uh, that I, I was really impressed with the way our team performed. And, and I know Laura Dubriel actually ended up with another medal there, but uh, we've, we've done pretty well on the Oval, haven't we? 
We have been. We missed out on a couple opportunities in women's short track. I think that team has a few disappointing performances. I think they were expecting to have a few more medals in the hall. But, I mean, the, the short track, Charles Amla, of course, winning his sixth medal in his career, tying Cindy Clausen for uh, the most Winter Olympic medals in Canadian history. That was a fantastic gold medal performance by those guys in the relay. Stephen Dubois, uh, a three-time medalist here in Beijing, and you mentioned Laurent Dubray, who actually had a very disappointing performance in the 500 meter, had to kind of recoup, uh, reevaluate things, recharge, and then he came back and won uh, silver in the 1,000 meter. That was earlier this morning. I love watching speed. I was a hockey guy growing up, Bill. I kind of yeah. wish I had an opportunity for speed skating because once I got going, I was okay. It was just a quick start. So I think long track speed skating may have been my sport. <laughs> a missed opportunity again. Uh, well, woulda, coulda, shoulda. Uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating to watch this and 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 to see the way that they've excelled in situations like this. So, what's what's the takeaway here, Mike? As you watch the games and and Canada's uh, you know performances in these games, uh, invariably there's you know there's going to be an analysis after that about what where where are our strengths, what are the weaknesses? Uh, should the government be more involved with financing, uh, training facilities, things of this nature? It's got to be encouraging right now to think that, you know what, we're, we're making progress here. Uh, we're not just showing up, uh, you know, we're not getting the participation medal. We're actually, as you mentioned, uh, doing pretty well when it comes to the gold, silver and bronze right now. So I, I, you get the sense we're on the right track here when it comes to the, the, the way we're preparing our athletes for these games? I think for sure. I mean, it goes back to the own the, own the podium campaign that we had in 2010, where we finished yeah. first in the medal hall in terms of gold medals, not overall medals. But starting in 2006 in Italy, that was kind of the first year where we had a medal hall greater than 20. And we pretty much hit that every Winter Olympics since then. And it's sports that we're not typically used to. We won a medal in ski jumping for the first time ever. So the sports where we typically have dominated, curling and hockey uh, on the men's side, we didn't do so well. But it's the sports where we're not really known for our prowess that is starting to kind of uh, capture things. And I think you have to look at programs like the training ground, right? They look for athletes in other sports and kind of funnel them in to winter sport opportunities, something that they may have never thought of. So there could be a hockey player listening to us right now. What I just said, hey, I'm a pretty fast skater, but I never had a chance in hockey. Maybe I'm 20 years old. Maybe I want to try speed skating. And that can be an avenue for them uh, with, with their athletic dreams. So I think we are definitely in, in a good spot right now. And hopefully that just continues to build as we move throughout the decade. Well, I know it's already started a discussion and a debate about uh, women's hockey, and you know there, there should be another avenue for them. There should be a, a women's league uh, for them to to apply their trade, of course, not just a you know the, the season on the national team. Uh, and I know that's something that's been in the works for quite some time, and maybe that's going to be one of the offshoots on this. Uh, listen, I, it's it's been fun talking to you through this whole thing. It's been fun staying up late uh, to watch our, our, our champions and uh, the women who really seem to carry the flag for us in such a big way during these Olympics. Some lozenges, uh, maybe some honey tea, Mike, and uh, relax and take it easy. You've worked hard and I really appreciate all your efforts, and thanks for joining us again today. Well, thanks, Bill. I was going to say a beer, but a lozenge would work well as well. We'll talk okay. to you again. Beer's good, too. That's good. <laughs> same same color. I'd probably have the same impact on you anyway. Take care, Mike. Thanks again. Thanks, Bill. Okay, Mike Arsenal, of course, uh, Global News, who's been uh, tracking what's happening in Beijing. And it's been a pretty decent game uh, for the Canadian contingent here. And as I say, the women have done exceptionally well. Uh, and there's always, uh, as, as Mike mentioned, a few surprises. Uh, some of the things that we thought we were going to do pretty well in, i.e. curling. Uh, but then, you know, we jump up and do so well in some of the other things like speed skating and, uh, and of course, uh, the half pipe and silver and some of the great, uh, well, it's really gymnastics on snow, isn't it? Uh, to watch the way that they perform and Canadians do it uh, better than most. Uh, when you look at the results, the Bill Kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on 900 CHML.
The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.